1 Corinthians 7, and we're starting at verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And Matthew chapter 19, and we'll start at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Over the last few weeks, we've been working through the chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And our our approach through the chapter has been to address a number of subjects, topically through the chapter, and then more broadly as we see them uh, taught throughout the scriptures. Last week, we spent some time thinking about the permanence of marriage as instituted by the Lord God. And as we um, might think of a summary of last week, I just want to commend to you a resource that I think summarizes what we tried to look at last week um, helpfully. This is called the New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. Um, And I've found it a very helpful resource to read personally. It it could be useful to do so uh, yourself, to work through if you're married, with your spouse, perhaps with friends, or even with teenagers and students. Because uh, in this catechism, uh, Christopher Gordon, the author, picks up a whole range of, of moral and some social and Christian living issues 
and seeks to bring biblical teaching on those range of things. And the lovely thing about it is because it's a catechism, it's really very brief and succinct and helpful in that sense. So, so if you want to know more about it, speak to me after. You can get it free online, uh, uh, and you can also get paper copies as well. But uh, there, uh, in this document, in question 10, the uh, question is asked, what is marriage? And the answer is, God created marriage to be a lifelong monogamous covenantal union between one man and one woman. And maybe you think, well, Matthew, 40 minutes last week, you could have just read three lines. <laughs> There's a bit more than that last week. <laughs> uh, but a uh, very helpful uh, resource. And as we come this week uh, to pick up, as I said last week, we were going to pick up, having think, thought about the permanence of marriage this week, we're going to think about the sad topic of divorce. And we need to say that, don't we, that this is a sad thing. And it's understandably a, a difficult and painful topic for us to talk about and to think about. It's, it's hard because if in the kindness of God we are happily married, then we don't want to think about the possibility of divorce. It's hard because if we have been divorced personally, or perhaps our, our parents or family member or a close friend have been through a divorce then maybe it takes us back to times that were painful and hard. And that's not easy. But divorce is, as James was saying, a sad reality in our world. And we need to think about divorce biblically. We need a biblical mindset so that we don't absorb the world's thinking when we think about this. And that indeed was the problem in Corinth, was it not? That again and again, as we've worked through these initial chapters of the book, what we saw was that the church, rather than following the teaching of Scripture, was absorbing what we found in the culture. And that's not how we should live as Christians. We need to have our minds framed and shaped by the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to try and do this evening. Now, I haven't got any slides, partly because it's a topic I would like us uh, to work through as you hear me share about it. If you've got questions afterwards, if you want to know some of the main things I was sharing, come and speak to me. Happy to go through those again. But that's how we're going to think about it this evening. And we remember, as we begin, that Jesus Christ was asked about the topic of divorce. We, we heard in the reading in Matthew chapter 19, indeed it's mentioned elsewhere as well. And he was asked by the Jewish teachers who had permitted a quick and easy approach to divorce. So at the time, it was possible under the Jewish teachers, not under God's law, but under the Jewish teachers' law, for a husband to divorce his wife if his wife was no longer pleasing to him. Now, you can imagine how broad a definition that could be. But it was permitted in that sense by the Jewish teachers. And that, of course, was a sinful way to treat wives and to treat God's creation ordinance of marriage. And Jesus very directly corrects that wrong view of divorce. But in doing so, he's clear that, it's, that that does not mean that divorce is never permitted. And as we come to think about the whole of the Bible's teaching on this subject, we see the whole of the Bible's teaching is that divorce is permitted, but not commanded in two situations. The situations of sexual immorality, and desertion. 
Now, as we hear that, that divorce is permitted but not commanded, we might ask, why would God permit divorce when marriage was by God's design to be a lifelong exclusive commitment? Well, the Lord permits it because sin affects every area of life, including marriage, and that means that there is no perfect marriage. And some sins of your spouse against you are so serious that you are biblically permitted to divorce. We heard in that reading in Matthew 19, in verses 7 to 9, that Jesus tells us why the Lord God, uh, through Moses, permitted divorce. The Pharisees say, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this is not the way from the beginning. So the Lord Jesus Christ says that divorce was permitted because of the hardness of our hearts. Sin is a reality in a fallen world. And so divorce was not God's creation pattern but rather a permitted response to how sin can affect our marriages. And the Lord God gives permission for divorce to protect against physical harm, to protect against an immoral spouse. You can imagine how a sinful spouse might go and run up huge debts that if you remain married would become very significant debts that you would bear as a couple. And also to protect the honor of the exclusive sexual bond in marriage. So how should we approach these kinds of questions? As we think about these kinds of moral, ethical questions, how should we approach them? Well, it's really important that in doing so, we look at what all the scriptures teach about these kinds of issues. Sometimes we might say we need to see the whole board we need to see everything the Bible teaches, because often the teaching that's given is in response to specific situations. And as we've worked through Corinthians, we've seen how that, that happens in all kinds of issues, that you get specific instruction with principles that undergird it. And we need to see all the passage in which God speaks about something, so that then we can say what principles underlie that teaching in those passages. So if we just study one text about a given question, we can have imbalance in how we come to our answers because one passage doesn't contain everything that God says about a given ethical question. Now, where do we see that? Well, very straightforward situation is we see that in the issue of anger. So think about anger. Now, we know in the Sermon Mount, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 says that anger is wrong without any in that passage apparent qualification. Matthew 5.22, anger, clearly wrong. But then, in Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul describes a kind of righteous, godly anger that is right for a time. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that when a given subject is addressed in a number of passages, we bring those passages together, and we see that Jesus in Matthew 5 was speaking about one kind of anger, and Paul in Ephesians 4 was speaking about a different kind of anger. And as you bring them all together, we understand the fullness of Scripture's teaching on different subjects. And that's especially important as we think about this question of divorce and remarriage, 
because Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Jesus addresses it in in Matthew 19, in, in Matthew 5, and also in other passages. So we need to see the whole board. So as we step into this, I want us to have four important principles in mind as we think about this subject. First principle, sin is powerful. Sin is powerful, and the devil works to multiply the effects of sin. And he is always looking for new ways to attack using sin. It's a bit like this. Uh, when you are seeking to defend uh, uh, against the, an unseen enemy through what, a cyber attack, think about a cyber attack, and what the, the computer programmers who are trying to defend that, that network need to do is they're always having to shift their defenses because the enemy is always trying to come at you from different directions. So you have an ever-evolving attack in that sense, which gets harder and harder to defend because different ways are found to attack you. And that's in some ways, not perfectly, but in some ways analogous to the way in which the devil loves to use sin to attack us in different ways. And that means this. Sin is powerful, so that means the way that we can sin against our spouses is always changing and in some ways seems to be growing. The ways in which sin can come into marriages seems to get greater and greater and bigger and bigger. Sin is powerful. Second thing, fundamental principle, is that situations are complex. Now, sometimes we use the language of an innocent party or a guilty party when it comes to divorce. And that can be useful when it's speaking about whether one party has sinned in a way that would give grounds for divorce. But there is generally, when there is a divorce, sin on both sides, but not always to the same degree. So we need to see the complexity of situations. Now, that makes it a really hard subject to preach on. (laughs) Because there are always going to be caveats and complexities. And you know me well. Um, I like to try and speak clearly, but I like to try and get all the caveats in <laughs> and the complexity. So, so value your prayers as we work through this subject. So I'm speaking in summary form this evening. Situations are complex. There is much more that we could say. We do not have time to say it wouldn't be appropriate to address it in this forum, but I'm happy to speak afterwards if you have questions. Situations are complex. Third principle, sin is powerful. Situations are complex. Thirdly, Humility is needed. Humility is needed due to the power of sin and the complexity of different situations. Some Christians would believe that divorce is never permitted. It's not what I think the Bible teaches, but Christians, godly Christians, who I respect greatly in the Lord, believe it's never permitted. So you have disagreement about whether divorce is at all permitted by some. Other Christians would disagree over what, over what grounds divorce is permitted upon. And then you have disagreement about whether a particular sin falls within one of the grounds under which divorce is permitted. Do you see the degree of complexity here? <laughs> and therefore the sense in which we've got to be humble it would be very easy to outline a scenario 
that would divide opinions among wise, godly Christians. Humility is needed. And that's not a new problem. I was reminded in thinking about this subject this week that the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a Presbyterian Confession of Faith, has a statement about the grounds for divorce. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, upon which, sorry, uh, on which, the, which is built upon the Westminster Confession of Faith, whilst not being Presbyterian in important ways, biblical ways, you would say, is, has no statement there about the grounds for divorce. Now, what does that indicate? It indicates that the godly church leaders who came together to debate these questions couldn't fully agree on this issue. And so it wasn't in the confession. That reminds us of the need for humility. It means we need to be very careful to pass judgment if we don't know all the facts. We need to trust godly believers who make prayerful judgments and godly elders who seek to guide and to care. We need to remember the words of James in James chapter 3 and verse 1 where he reminds us that the responsibilities of being a teacher and a leader are very great. So humility is needed. But in all of that, Sin is powerful, situations are complex, humility is needed. Fourth key principle, never forget redemption and the power of the gospel. Never forget the power of the gospel that brings real hope to our marriages. We need to believe, because we believe in a God who is powerful, whose spirit is at work in us as his people, that change is possible. We have to believe that, friends, not because we've seen it happen, which I have, and I'm sure you have too, but because God believes that about his people. God believes that change is possible. Great sins can be confessed and forgiven and never repeated. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? The work of the Spirit in the heart of a Christian means that change is possible. That means it's possible in a whole range of areas of your life, And particularly, it means that there's hope for marriages. There's hope for marriages, even when we sin in such a way that would give our spouse the freedom to request to ask for divorce. But if they choose to forgive and reconcile, change is possible. Not guaranteed, but possible. We need to believe that too. Not naively, but truly. And friends, that makes us hopeful, doesn't it? In all kinds of errors, and particularly hopeful if our marriages are hard. Change can be hard, but someone can be different in Christ. So those are our four principles as we start. Sin is powerful. Situations are complex. Humility is needed. Never forget the power, never forget redemption and the power that God works in our lives by his spirit in our marriages. So now... Let's consider, we're going to think about divorce, we're going to think about remarriage, and then we're going to think about um, some closing thoughts on what about the past and what about today. So, first of all, when does God allow divorce? Well, here's what the fullness of the Scripture's teaching. God permits, but does not command divorce, 
in cases where your spouse sins against you by sexual immorality or desertion. If your spouse sins against you in one of those two ways, that does not mean that you must divorce. God does not command you to do so. And we must be very careful that if God does not command it, then neither should we. It's interesting that in Hosea chapter 3, you think of the story of Hosea, this, this prophet who lives out this, this astonishing illustration of God's mercy and grace and kindness. And what happens? Well, well, the prophet Hosea takes back his wife who has committed adultery and seems to have had a child with another man. Takes her back. That's permitted. That's possible. But God does allow divorce, and divorce is permitted if you are sinned against by, and here we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, desertion. Divorce is permitted if you are sinned against by desertion. And desertion uh, is at least means to leave or to be removed from the home with permanence. To leave or be removed from the home with permanence. And this is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, where we read, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. Now, Paul has been preparing us for this verse because if you look slightly earlier into verses 13 and 14, you hear him speaking of marriages with an unbeliever where in that case, the unbeliever consents to live with you, is content to live with you. They're willing. So verse 12, she is willing to live with him, speaking of a Christian brother who has a life who is a wife who is an unbeliever and she's willing to live with him and Paul says he must not divorce her. And then verse 12, situations reversed, other way around. Woman, uh, the, the wife knows the Lord, the husband does not, yet he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But then you sometimes come to the sad situation in verse 15, where they won't live with you. They don't want to continue to be married to you, and so they leave the home with, with permanence, or they're removed from the home for some other reason. And Paul is really clear in verse 15 that if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. It's very striking there that that in the Greek there is a command. It's a command that, that you can't, if they have left and don't want to be married to you, you're not bound. <laughs> you can't do anything to, to make them preserve that covenant. They've left. They don't intend to return. The brother and sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called you to live in peace. That peace is that sense that that comes from freedom not to remain bound to a spouse who will not live within marriage to you. So, divorce is permitted if you're sinned against by desertion, but also divorce is permitted if you're sinned against by sexual immorality, the second ground, and that's what Jesus teaches about in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. We'll focus on Matthew 19, where Jesus says there in verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. So the ground here is sexual immorality. Now, what is sexual immorality? Well, that's a broad word in the Greek, 
and it refers to any sexual relations outside of the marriage bond. It applies to sex where one or both parties are married to somebody else. And it also applies, it's important to say, to any sexual relations where neither is married. So where the scriptures say sexual morality is not right, there they are referring to two people who may be not married but engage in sexual relations. That's also covered by sexual morality. But here in this passage, Paul, Jesus is teaching that divorce is permitted but not commanded if your spouse commits sexual immorality. So to summarize all of this, we might say, Jay Adams has put it like this, even though all divorces are a result of sin, not all divorces are sinful. In these two situations of desertion and sexual morality, divorce is permitted but not commanded. So you need to see that. Now, what about another situation? Well, what about if I am not the spouse that has sinned? So if I'm not the spouse who's been sinned against, I'm the spouse who has sinned. And the Bible is clear here that divorce is not permitted if you sin against your spouse. Even if you sin in such a way as to give them grounds to break the marriage covenant. You cannot sin even in desertion or sexual morality, and then you yourself seek a divorce. Your spouse could, but they might desire to be reconciled to you. And if you're, if, if you're walking with the Lord, if you've repented and turned back to the Lord, then you should be willing to do that. In fact, if we think about how the Bible teaches on this, the Bible's teaching is that you cannot bring an end to your marriage unless you are sinned against. Do you see that? The permanence of marriage, that's what's being taught to us here. And there are a great many reasons that people give for seeking divorce that the Bible does not allow. So, for example, someone might say, I'm disappointed with my spouse or with marriage itself. I believe we're not compatible or perhaps we disagree too much or the relationship is difficult sometimes. Some might say that, that I find marriage constraining. Some would even say that they think it might be better for the children if they have children. Or they might say, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. Or I'm no longer in love. Sometimes some say, I think I married the wrong person. And all my friends agree. They say I'd be happier if I wasn't married. Friends, we must be so careful, mustn't we? We must be so careful because our promises mean something. Our promises mean something. And those wrong reasons for seeking divorce reveal a heart problem that divorce won't fix because it's something deeper. Now, there may be situations where temporary separation is advisable for safety and protection. Often in those situations, the police and the legal authorities should be involved. But we must be careful not to extend the Bible's teaching to fit our own desires. God is all wise. God knows best. His ways are best. And when he commands, he also enables and gives us grace to follow. And as we think about this 
need therefore to obey his commandments and be faithful to our promises, we need to see that our obedience, as we'll come to this in as we come to look at the Ten Commandments at Exodus in chapter 20, we'll see that our obedience is part of our worship of God. Because as we obey, what are we doing? As we obey, we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is our king, and we receive all that he says for our lives as good and right. And when we add our own reasons... And what are we doing? Well, we're worshipping self rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. So be careful, friends, that we see where God permits it, but we don't add to the scriptures in that way. So that's divorce. Now let's come to this question of remarriage. When does God allow remarriage? Well, in summary, if you divorced for the reasons that the Bible permits, then you are free to remarry. That means we may remarry if we did not sin in ways to give ground for divorce, but we were sinned against and therefore there was a divorce. Now, if you think about where is that taught, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, that's what Paul is teaching there. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. They are free from that marriage to remarry again. And that's a freedom. It's, if that's your experience, then it would be wise to take time and not to rush to seek another marriage. But if you were sinned against and you had biblical grounds for divorce, then you are free to remarry. But we may not remarry if we did sin in ways to give our spouse the grounds for divorce. Where do we see that? Well, again, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 7, in verse 10 and 11, we get the statement, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So you shouldn't separate. But if you do, then you must stay unmarried or reconcile to your spouse if that's a possibility. Now, reconciliation may not be possible. Your spouse may be unwilling or they could have remarried themselves. And in those cases, it seems that Paul's teaching is that we should remain unmarried. Third situation Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians is that we may remarry if our spouse dies. That's there in verse 39, chapter 7, verse 39, where we read that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but she must, uh, must belong, but he must belong to the Lord. So you're free to remarry, if your spouse dies, but note, it should be in the Lord. Now, that's really interesting because this verse is one of a number of verses that are so very, very clear of a very important principle for marriage, which is that we seek to marry in the Lord. We seek to marry another Christian who knows the Lord. That means that, that marriage and everything that comes before it is something that we pursue with another Christian. Engagement, courtship, going out, should be with another believer. 
So that's remarriage. And now we come to think, what about the past? I want to address this for a few minutes now because I may be questions that are going through our minds. Friends, if, if you were helped or advised by your elders through a divorce, then can I encourage you to trust their judgment, even in what may have been a very complex situation, and not go back over what happened, whether it was right or whether it was wrong. I encourage you to do that because it will not help you to relive a hard time, and it will not help others to ask them to revisit a situation with you where they don't know everything about the situation. If you were guided through that by your elders and you were told that you were free to divorce and in time to remarry, trust their wisdom in the application of Scripture to your situation. Don't go over the past in that sense. But what if you were divorced but not on biblical grounds? Well, there I think the scriptures would say that if you were legally divorced, even if you had sinful reasons for that, you are still divorced. The covenant has been broken, even if it has been broken without a biblical ground. You are divorced in that sense. But when we come with repentance and we come to confess that sin to the Lord, we need to remember there is always forgiveness at the cross. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Remember that in the scriptures, the people who ran to Jesus in the Gospels were the ones who thought they were beyond rescue and they thought that society had judged them harshly. And what they find is that they are not condemned if they come looking to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He receives them, he forgives them, he welcomes them as they come in repentance and faith. And friends, that can be your confidence as well. And that's really important because sometimes we can get into a spiral of repentance and we think that we have to keep on going over something again and again and again. But we need to remember that once we have confessed and repented and then we're living by faith, we don't need to go back over past sins. Honor the Lord in how you see your past by seeing that past through the lens of the cross. The Lord chose to forgive you through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord chooses not to remember your sins, and that should be enough for us. And what about all of us as we think about the past? Well, can I encourage us all to be careful not to judge others? Don't be quick to assume you know what someone should have done in a given situation it is very unlikely you know everything that was going on. And please, 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 be careful not to gossip or dwell inappropriately on somebody else's circumstances. Biblically speaking, gossip is talking about someone who isn't present to their detriment. And we need to be so careful in how we speak to one another. So that's the past. What about as we close here and now? 
Well, having worked through this subject of divorce and marriage over the last few weeks, the most important thing for us to remember, and this is where I want us to close, is the love of Christ, is to know that the love of Christ is better and stronger than any human love. Marriage is a good thing. We saw that last week. It is a gift of God in particular circumstances. But it is not the be-all and the end-all. It is not the means by which you will know the greatest love in all the world. There is one place you can know that love. It's from one person, and it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's love is better and stronger than any human love. We need to know that if we are blessed with happy and godly marriages. We need to know that Christ's love is greater and better. And daily, however great our marriage might be, our goal should be to be satisfied with him and his love and then to seek to to show that love to our spouse as God commands us and calls us. If you are married and your marriage is hard or difficult, the message is the same. That just as the person who has that happy and godly marriage needs to see that greater and better love, the love is there for you as well, friends. The love of Christ is greater and better than anything that is hard and difficult in your marriage, as hard as it may be. And so we should be satisfied, seek to be satisfied in Christ and his love. If you are divorced or widowed, and you continue to know the pain and feel that loss of what you once had, Christ's love is greater and better. Seek to be satisfied with him and his love. And then if you have never been married, but would like to be married, as you trust God for his provision of sustaining grace and pray and wait for a spouse, we know also that Christ's love is greater. Christ's love is better. And we can seek to be satisfied with him and his love. So friends, as we close, may Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 Verses 14 to 19, be our prayer and experience. What does he say there? He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Praying for strength so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you might know Christ by faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, here's a great petition, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is, say it with me, the love of of Christ that you may be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God let us pray our God and our Father how we thank you for the love of our Lord Jesus Christ how we thank you for the way in which he expressed that love coming 
from the glories of heaven to this sinful world to know the suffering and rejection and pain that characterized our Savior's life, particularly for those three years of public ministry and those hours on which he hung on the cross. And Lord, as we think of all that our Savior went through for us, we bless you and we thank you for a Savior whose love is without measure. For a Savior whose love is better and greater than any mere human love. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you call us to show that love in our marriages, to experience that love according to your grace in that calling. We thank you for the way in which we can show that love between one another in a church family. Help us, we pray, to have that loving attitude towards each other. And Lord, may we always and ever be satisfied in our Saviour and his love. Lord, we pray for your Spirit's help. We know that in ourselves, this is not a prayer that we could pray if we were the ones who are going to do this. But we come to a God who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And so according to your power, we pray that you might work that in us. To the glory of our Saviour Jesus Christ, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.